Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. This morning, as we open up Contramundum, living for God's glory in a hostile world, we want to talk about science, scientism, and environmentalism. You know, do we really need God anymore? Science has disproven creation and miracles. Well, aren't God, Christianity, and miracles kind of obsolete? Isn't that for an earlier, more primitive time? Don't we have a better explanation through science? There's really no evidence that what the Bible claims is true. It's a bunch of fairy tales. So these are the type of things that you hear. And as someone who is trained in the sciences and worked in the sciences for a number of years, it's important to know that there's a distinction between science and scientists and those who are adherents of scientism. Scientists study the physical universe. Scientism declares that there is nothing except the physical universe. How many of you watched the series Cosmos? Remember what Mr. Sagan said? about the universe is all there is, all there ever will be. And he said that at the end. That was his mantra. That was the materialistic mantra, the materialism. And scientism limits understanding to the scientific method. So they can deny anything outside of that realm. Scientists use science to solve problems and help others. Scientism declares that science is the savior of the world and mankind. After all, Bill Nye doesn't want taxpayers to allow their tax dollars to fund an improper understanding of science because, he says, it will rob our students of their future. Well, there is a backlash against those who believe in a biblical view of creation. Two examples. Dr. Andrew Snelling, an incredible uh, Ph.D. geologist that I had the opportunity to meet, um, and he is featured in the film uh, the, is Genesis history. If you've not had a chance to watch that, I highly recommend it. You will absolutely, absolutely be blown away. There's so much great information which supports the biblical worldview and biblical understanding of creation. My lovely assistant, Clay Sharp. Let's give him a hand, please. All right, is that better? Ooh, today I am Bryce. Okay, what an honor. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, so Dr. Andrew Snelling uh, wanted to go into the Grand Canyon. You see a picture there with all of his strata, and he wanted to collect rocks as part of a research. Now, it's rather typical that people go into the Grand Canyon and do research. Well. When he submitted his application, it became known by the peer reviews that uh, Dr. Snelling is a creationist. And as such, they, boom, immediately canceled his request. And he had to actually file a lawsuit. Four years later, it was finally allowed that because of his presuppositions, they could not stop him from doing this research. All he wanted to do was collect 50 fist-sized rocks as part of his collection of material to do his research. Another one, Forrest M. Mims, brilliant man who is an amateur scientist and who has been writing about science and scientific projects for the last 30 years, applied for a job for, with Scientific American and was turned down specifically again because he was known for his creationist views. And even during the interview, he was asked about his view on abortion, which had nothing to do with, but it was obviously a religious discrimination case. Another example, how many of you in here have had an MRI? <clears throat> the fellow who created an MRI is a devout believer, Dr. Raymond Demadian. And Dr. Demadian created the MRI. And there was a Nobel Prize awarded for this incredible device that is able to discern between healthy and cancerous tissue. Dr. Demadian was not given that award specifically because of his view that the Bible story of creation is valid. Two lesser people who contributed minor sections to the development of the MRI were given the Nobel Prize. 
Well, we know that the Nobel Prize has been highly politicized, right? Over the years, we've seen that, the Nobel Prize in different categories. <clears throat> but evolution is king and cannot be countermanded. It cannot be challenged. Well, here's the wonderful reality. Good science contradicts evolutionary theory. And you and I can see that in such things as micro versus macro evolution. We observe evolution. For example, dogs. You can isolate specific characteristics and traits from the dog line. And you can have small dogs. Gracious, you can even go to Ellis Park and watch wiener dog races. I don't know why you'd want to do that. <laughs> you can go on YouTube and watch them. They're hilarious. I don't know how they put saddles on those. But anyway. <clears throat> so people say, okay, we see that. Therefore, evolution is true. We see the evolution of dogs. Therefore, Well, the problem is you're changing the definition of a microevolution to a macroevolution. You don't see. You don't see the context. You cannot repeat macroevolution. It is a theory. It's the fallacy of equivocation, where the meaning of a word is shifted in the course of an argument. Natural science, natural selection, excuse me, is not evolution. It's probably the most abused argument that <clears throat> evolutionists bait people into showing them a change that is merely natural selection. Or in the case of the dogs that we just saw, that's intelligence selection. A mind is selecting which traits want to be isolated. <clears throat> and most people say that, according to evolutionists, natural selection does not have the power to generate anything new. They will admit that. And yet that perception continues through the population. That natural selection is an evidence of evolution. But they also go to closed systems. For example, one of the things that is amazing to me is Richard Dawkins, and some of you may have seen this film, when he's finally pressed to the point of saying, okay, well, where did life come from you know, on the earth? He points to aliens possibly planting life on... And yet, he believes in a closed system. What? Where did the aliens come from? Now, it's easy to mock and it's easy to denigrate the intelligence and the, and the ability of people who hold to these theories, and that's not what we want to do. We can show and question the logical conclusions. That's entirely valid. But, you know, for, at one time, there was, a, there was a theory that the water on Earth was not here on Earth during the primary stages of its this planet's development. And that water was actually contributed by comets. Are you aware of that? By comets. Like the Hellbop comet. But the problem is that the water on those comets is, you know, is a, a deuterium. It's, it's, a, it's a heavy hydrogen. It's a radioactive form of hydrogen. It's my, what you might get during, for example, some of the nuclear accidents. There was some water that was released during the Three Mile Island, and that was heavy water, and that's what you'll find on a comet. And by the way, that's not what you find in the oceans or in the aquifers. <clears throat> so it's, it's important to know this, that the science is not settled. And you'll hear that expression, the science is settled. We now know. <clears throat> and that's invalid. As a matter of fact, it's invalid to the entire scientific method, which has demonstrated time after time, year after year, century after century, that theories can be replaced by new evidence. And when you do the research to validate a theory and it doesn't come true, then a new theory is postulated. Science is not settled. There was an, ex there was an example of homology. And homology is simply the presumption that similarity among organisms suggests genetic relationship. T. Barra wrote this, if you compare a 1953 and a 1954 Corvette side by side, then a 54 and a 55 model and so on, the descent with modification is overwhelmingly obvious. This is what paleontologists do with fossils, and the evidence is so solid and comprehensive that it cannot be denied by reasonable people. Well, there's a problem with his example, isn't there? What's the problem with the example? Somebody designed the Corvette. And somebody designed the changes. So simply because there are similarities, 
between species. This has lungs, that has lungs, that has blood cells, this has a central nervous system, does not mean a common origin. In the example of the Corvette that you see in front of you, there is a common origin. There are designers. There is intelligent design. How many of you remember the concept of vestigial organs? How many of you were told that your tailbone is evidence that you were a monkey at one time? <laughs> you little monkey, you. Well, that we are descended from apes. The quote is, there is no question that because of the great dissimilarity of the early stages of, let me, let me back up here, excuse me, wrong quote. Uh, in 1990, now this, this is a theory that's been debunked, right? But in, as late as 1990, this quote, there are, according to Widersheim, no less than 180 vestigial structures in the human body sufficient to make of a man a veritable walking museum of antiquities. So you look at the appendix, you look at the tailbone, and you say, well, obviously, these are vestiges of our evolutionary past. It's still repeated, although as early as 1946, it's been disproven. And it continues. It's in textbooks today. 1991, for example. Pardon? Scientific proof, yes. For example, 1991, uh, 1981, anatomically the appendix, which is called a vestigial organ and has caused some of you problems, shows evidence of a lymphoid function. There is experimental evidence as well as the vermiform appendix is a lymphoid organ which acts as a reservoir of antibody-producing cells. You may have heard of the leg bone in whales. And the leg bone in whales is supposed to be an indication that whales were once male, uh, on land and then they went back to the sea. Well, research has shown that those bones, which they thought were rudiments of legs, are actually part of the supporting structure for the genital wall of these great mammals. So, if you hear a comment about you know, vestigial organs, the question to ask is, one, is it possible that that vestigial organ is an organ of unknown function, number one? And number two, is it possible that it's an organ of lost function within the same species? You ask those questions because the assertion is that it's an evidence of our evolutionary past. How many of you in school remember the story about the peppered moth. Peppered moth. Do you remember that? The pollution in London was so great that it colored the trees and that this, uh, this fellow, Dr. Kettlewell, produced these pictures that you see here of how obviously the light-colored moth would be eaten by the birds and the dark, uh, excuse me, the, the, on, on, a, on, a, uh, on a dark structure and the dark-colored moths, they would survive. Well, there are a couple of problems with that. First off, it's really not an evidence of evolution. It could be natural selection, which is not the same as evolution. And number two, peppered moths don't land on trees. His theory and his pictures were rigged because he had an agenda. <clears throat> and it's actually an example of unnatural selection. The fact that peppered moths do not normally rest on tree trunks invalidated Kettlewell's experiments and posed a serious problem for classic explanation of industrial melanism, which is the different coloration, in peppered moths. Well, it's still, as early as the 80s, in textbook, as a conspicuous evidence of evolutionary process. There's a clinging to this truth. How many of you remember Leeuwenhoek or Stanley Miller's experiment? the creation of life in the laboratory, <clears throat> the creation of amino acids. All right, so what you see here is a trap. And you see Earth's primitive oceans in the large vessel. And that's being heated. And it's being subjected to gamma and beta radiation. <clears throat> and it forms these particles that are coalesced and then subject to, as you see in the top, some electronic, <clears throat> excuse me, some electrical stimulation. 
And as a result, there are particles that fall into the condensing column below it and are in a collecting trap. And this showed that, hey, this is how life on a prom- out of, could have evolved out of a primordial ooze in the early stages of the Earth's development. The problem is, you really don't know what the Earth's development was like, number one. Number two, this is a designed experiment, and it's also a design experiment to trap these fragile molecules which will fall apart if left in a natural state. So it's, it's, again, it's a rigged experiment. It doesn't prove anything except, hey, this is a clever way to create both left-handed and right-handed amino acids. And the problem is, when you have those highly reactive elements, they deteriorate very quickly. It's not a reasonable explanation for how life could have been created. Well, there's also some evidence that I think is fascinating. Has anybody ever heard of Tikalik? Tikalik, this lovely fish that was supposed to be a transitory specimen between land animals and fish. Well, the problem is that this, Tikalik, yes, this, the, the problem is that this transitional form is that paleontologists will, uh, will say that, well, it's okay that you're getting all this publicity about Tikalik, but the problem is we believe that there were transition forms 18 million years before this. And there's no, the evidence that you see there, those bones, that's it. There's no other evidence that points to structures that would give any indication that this creature was able to come out onto land and walk. This is one of my favorites here. This is a living fossil. This is a living fossil. You can find evidence of this creature, this fish, in fossil layers. And it was thought that this fish was extinct. Until in 1938, they came upon a little uh, village off the coast of South Africa where these people were catching them and barbecuing them. (laughs) The most delicious fossils you've ever had. And again... We, we can all make assertions, blind assertions about things without having sufficient evidence. And it proves that evolution is wrong. It was touted to be a transitional form with half-formed legs and primitive lungs. That has no primitive lungs. That has no legs. Again, it was a speculation and a hope that this would form a good sense of evidence. So if you want to catch a living fossil, There's a little village off the eastern coast of South Africa that you can go to and even swim with these items. (sighs) (laughs) How many of you are old enough to remember the Class B horror flicks where something was subject to radiation and it came out with superpowers? Spider-Man. Is he strong? Listen, bub. He's got radioactive blood. Look out. Here comes the Spider-Man. What is the result of radiation exposure and poisoning to developing creatures? Death. Horrible mutations. So... Unfortunately, this concept still survives today, even after Hiroshima, for Pete's sakes. How many of you remember ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny? All that means is, because of the development of an embryo, you can see its evolutionary past. That handsome bearded fellow there, uh, Erst Haeckel, had concluded that the evolutionary the stage, uh, through stages of species from single cells to humans, phylogeny, were repeated in embryological development, ontogeny, of each species. He surmised that being highest on the evolutionary tree, human embryos should pass through the lower stages of more primitive species. 
single cell fish, amphibian, reptile, mammal to human. And he was so convinced, he self-proclaimed the biogenetic law, which is ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. The developmental stages of the embryo shows or demonstrates your evolutionary past. Does anybody know the problem with this? It's a drawing, it's fake. Yeah. It's not true. It was disproven. But again, the man had an agenda. He wanted to prove evidence that supported his theory. How many of you have seen this chart before? Nebraska man. He was built from the tooth of an extinct pig. Now, later on, to the credit of the scientific community, the scientific community went back and said, hey, this was wrong. That's good. But the problem is that it was first espoused as a missing link between early hominids, early man-like creatures, and today's modern man. And the press ran with it. And it was used for decades. You know, it started in 1922 in the London News. Piltdown Man. Piltdown Man was an orangutan, one of the most famous frauds in the history of silence. Dawson, who is an amateur uh, archaeologist, claimed to have found the bones of a primitive hominid, a missing link, in a quarry near the Piltdown Common in Sussex, England. Now, this, this creature was constructed from parts of a modern-looking skull and an ape-like jaw. Well, it was discovered to be a hoax, consisting of a modern human skull and an orangutan jaw. And the testing proved that there were many thousands of years difference between the two pieces. Matter of fact, some of these finds were found in a collection of bones that were all together, thinking that they were the same. Whereas really what they were is the remains of a, of a barbecue. Somebody had a tailgate party. And threw all the bones in a pit. And many of you have seen charts like this. How many of you have seen the horse, Eohippus? Hippopotamus is water horse. Hippus is horse. Eohippus. The evolution of the horse from the small creature to today's modern creature. And the scientists would say this is an evidence of the evolution of the horse. Well, it's Problem is, they're all horses, number one. Number two, yes, there is variation. Some of the number of, number of ribs is different. Some of the number of toes is different. But again, they're still all horses. And this picture is still being used today in textbooks, and there are even displays in modern museums of this. Well, it doesn't stop in the 1920s. It doesn't stop in 1946. How about climate change? In 1970, we were supposed to be in an ice age by 2000. Who remembers that? Remember that time in Newsweek? We were supposed to be buried in ice. In 1976, global cooling would cause a world war by 2000. I'm still waiting for my flying cars, but... 1989, global warming and rising sea levels would wipe entire nations off the map by 2000. 1990, in five to ten years, we will lose all the rainforests. 1999, the Himalayan glaciers will be gone in ten years. 2000, snow will soon be a thing of the past. 2007, didn't we just have... Dave, didn't you, Dave, didn't you just give a picture of an inch of snow on your front step there? 2007, global warming will cause fewer hurricanes. 2008, the Arctic ice, the Arctic will be ice-free by 2013. 2012, global warming will cause more hurricanes. And today we say the science is settled. Seems a bit ironic. Now again, not everybody who's a scientist is bent on creating a false narrative. 
there are scientists that we have to thank for their diligent, truthful, and honest work. But we remember that scientists are like you and I. They're fallen individuals. And that people come at it with their own presuppositions and their own agendas. We could say that the ocean is not rising significantly. The polar ice is increasing, not melting away. Polar bears are increasing in number. Heat waves have actually diminished, not increased. Never mind the fact that summer in southwestern Indiana is coming. There, there hasn't been any global warming since 1997. The temperature of the planet has essentially been flat for those years. The planet was cooling from 40 to 75, 1940 to 1975. The upswing afterwards only lasted 22 years. And there is no scientific consensus that global warming is a fait accompli. It is a fact. What is the problem with saying that there is a consensus in the scientific community? The, cons cons the, the problem is that fact is not established by popularity. Fact is not established because certain people have an agreement. Over 31,000 scientists, credible in their own fields, have signed a petition saying humans are not causing global warming. And more than 1,000 scientists went on to another report saying there is no global warming at all. So it is not only the uneducated, Bible-thumping deniers that are doing that. But if you read the press, that's the impression you'll get. Arctic ice is up 50% since 2012. Climate models showing global warming have been wrong over and over. Predictions about the impact of global warming have been proven wrong. James Hansen of NASA predicted that the West Side Highway in New York would be underwater by 2012 because of global warming. I've not driven there lately, and I'm sure that there are a lot of burned-out cars still on it, but it's not underwater. Another example of how science can be misdirected. Has anyone heard of the God gene? How about the gay gene? Well, Dean Hammer is a geneticist at the National Institute of Health, um, and he claims to have found an explanation for the belief in God. It is a God gene that produces an evolutionary explanation for faith. Hammer redefines God as a concept of self-transcendence, which is a measurable capacity to reach out beyond oneself to see everything as part of totality. Sounds a little bit like the Buddhist concept of being one with all, right? So based on temperament and character identity, a TCI, which was a survey given to thousands of twins, uh, Dean Hammer claims to have discovered a gene he identifies as VMAT2, which controls the flow of monoamines to the brain. Now, monoamines are like dopamine, serotonin, and which can be customarily released by psychotropic drugs and hallucinogenics. So if you believe in God, you are on the same level as those who are taking psychotropic drugs and hallucinogenics. It does explain a lot. My family, when they heard that, said, oh, there you go, right there. <clears throat> Dean Hammer describes himself as a materialist, believing that all mental processes can be accounted for by a few basic physical laws. Armed with that belief, he searches for a reason for belief in God or transcendence, whatever exactly that means, that fits his evolutionary materialistic and mechanistic view. Well, what was the impact of his findings? What was the impact of his finding that was highly touted in Time, Newsweek, major newspapers? When it was subjected to a peer study, 
quietly, this is what was said. What was said was this quote. This is not the first time a scientist has tried to prove a genetic basis for some human behavior. In 1993, for example, a scientist reported a genetic link to male homosexuality in a region of the X chromosome. The report brought a huge media fanfare, but other scientists who tried to replicate the study failed. That scientist's name was Dean Hammer. The gay gene, the God gene. Dean Hammer. There are people who have agendas, and they get publicity, because the natural man, what? Receives not the things of the spirit, and he cannot. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. Man will reflect his presuppositions, his biases, his discrimination. And it still happens, even in the name of science. We need to remember that. We need to remember when we're subject in the classroom with our coworkers, people who would challenge our intelligence because we believe in a literal creation, intelligent design, or not swallow the red pill of global warming, that we are ignorant throwbacks. We need to remember that there are some things that are given to us that are not established science. Dating and aging systems are not absolute. Again, I would highly recommend, if you've not watched the film, Is Genesis History? I would strongly recommend you watch it because this concept of dating and aging systems is important. You cannot look at a bone and say, as my friend Dan Shell reminded me yesterday, <clears throat> cannot look at a bone in a, in a layer of dirt and rock and say, well, I know the bone is 1.6 million years old because the rock is 1.6 million years old. Well, how do you know the bone? How do you know the rock is 1.6 million years old? Well, I know that the rock is 1.6 million years old because the bone is 1.6 million years old. <laughs> And his son rightly pointed out that that's a bit of circular reasoning. Dating methods can contradict each other. And if they're not reliable, you have to question the validity. Radioisotopic starting uh, dating clocks starts when a rock cools. How many of you have heard about the dating of current volcanic material? Or Mount St. Helens and seen the changes there? You know, while there is a uniformity that we can observe, there are cases where that uniformity does not exist and is not valid to be taken into consideration. How many of you have heard of the hourglass illustration? If you and I walked into a room and we saw a beautiful hourglass that maybe held a quart of material and someone had turned it and there was material flowing from the top to the bottom of the hourglass. You could measure how quickly that sand was falling through that narrow orifice, right? And based on the volume of the glass, which you could calculate, understanding the, you know, the surface area and the, and the total cubic inches in a, in a cone, you could identify the amount of material in the bottom of the glass and the amount of material in the top of the glass. Based on that flow rate, you could then project how long that hourglass has been running, right? And how much more time remains in the top of that hourglass. It's valid, right? Well, if I walk into a room and I see that beautiful hourglass that with that quart size capacity, and it's flowing, and I make those calculations, and I come to a conclusion, what could I possibly miss? What could be wrong with my calculation? 
When did it get flipped before I walked into the room? How much material was in there before it got flipped? Was there any vibration? Do any of you play board games? Yes. All right. Any of you play board games with a little timer, a little sand timer? One of the things I love to do when I'm playing that board game, and it's not my turn, is I like to take the sand glass and just make it go a little fast. <laughs> You're not going to play with me. Okay, fine. But there are many variables that are not included in that calculation. We know that radioisotope dating does not always work because we can test it on rocks of known age. In 1997, a team of eight research scientists, known as the RATE Group, radioisotopes radio and the age of the Earth, set out to investigate the assumptions commonly made in standard radioisotope dating processes. Their findings were significant and directly impact the evolutionary dates of millions of years. A rock sample from the newly formed 1986 lava dome from Mount St. Helens was dated using potassium argon dating. And you know the you know the theory about materials that would decay and leave a certain you know, trace element. The newly formed rock gave ages for the different materials in it of between 500,000 and 2.8 million years. By the way, I'm 61 years old. When I was a kid, the age of the Earth was 4.5 million years old. How old is the Earth supposed to be by today's best guesses? 4.5 billion years. You have to. Apparently, I wasn't keeping track of time. <clears throat> but you have to have that greater amount of time, don't you? As the mathematical improbability is understood and the complexity of life is understood, whether you're talking about an eye or you're talking about a spider that lives underwater, has a bubble of air, takes that bubble of air down, and is able to hunt for food underwater because it has that bubble of air with it. How did that evolve? What about the Bombardier beetle with these two toxic poisons? that is able to create this toxin against its enemies. How, how in the world did that evolve? The rods and cones in our eye, the, the, the ear, the... Amazing. And yet, there's a mountain located on the North Island of New Zealand. It's one of the country's most active volcanoes. Eleven samples were taken from the solidified lava and dated. Those rocks are known to have formed in eruptions in 1949, 1954, and 1975. The rock samples were sent to a respected commercial laboratory in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the ages of the rocks were between 270,000 and 3.5 million years old. Well, we know that these rocks are less than 70 years old. It is apparent that the assumption is false, that the amount of residual material does not indicate the age of the rock. Why should we trust it for rocks of unknown age? In each case of those tests that I've just mentioned, the ages of the rocks were greatly inflated because of the presumption and the assumptions. Now, there are godly scientists that exist. Newton, Pasteur, Kemper, Descartes, the doctor who invented the, the uh, MRI that we, many of us have benefited from, is it true that only the uneducated reject evolution? No. Modern evolutionary theory is being revised. As good scientific theory should be revisited and examined for its validity. <clears throat> you know, there's an arrogance that says that the science is settled. There's an arrogance that says, well, we now know. Primitive peoples thought this. But now we now know. Evolution is a theory. It's not a fact. You know, it's something that can be legitimately challenged. It's not logical to state it's here, so it must have evolved. Yes? 
what is the fascination? The question is, what is the fascination with knowing the age of the Earth and the age of these finds? Is it simply to state that, um, that there is no God? I would, I would not go that far. I think in some people's minds it could be. Uh, but I do believe that there is a, a proper sense that we bear as God's image bearers to understand the order of the universe. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his power. And we are inquisitive beings. God designed us to be that way. And so I think it is natural and appropriate that people should wonder, okay, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, how do we understand this process? So I don't think we can attribute it all to evolution. I, I think we can say that there's a genuine curiosity and an inquisitiveness. <clears throat> yes? Very well said. Very well said. You know, it is, it is part of how God designed us. You know, and so these people who have these assumptions and who make these claims, even though they're wrong and they may have agendas that are contrary to good science and to the word of God, they still bear the image of God. And so we're going to treat them with respect. We can legitimately challenge those presumptions and we can move on. So how do we respond? How do we respond? Well, first, we are going to go back to our source and we are going to say that the scriptures, God, his son, consistently taught one creation story throughout history. You can go through the Old Testament, the New Testament, and you find time and time again there's one story. The age of the earth is clearly depicted as not being millions and millions of years old. You know, faith is not the result of winning an argument. I am not going to engender faith in my coworkers in our scientific research by giving them the huge amount of data that I just glossed over this morning. There is so much material that we could talk about. How do we help each other when we are confronted with that? How would you respond? What do you believe is the appropriate way to give a godly response to those who have been, like you and I, spoon-fed evolution? I was spoon-fed evolution as a child. I came to faith and was still believing in evolution. I went to school and I studied the sciences. And it was there and studying both the scripture and the sciences, that I began to realize the huge flaws in evolutionary theory. How do we respond? How do you respond to your brother-in-law who calls you an idiot for believing in six-day creation? How do you respond to your coworkers who scoff at you because you don't believe in modern science? Bo. Good, so there is a reliance not upon my intellect and my ability to persuade, 
but there is a reliance upon the God who is able to change hearts and change minds. Good, excellent. <clears throat> what? Yes, Randy. They're good scientists, yes. <clears throat> Right, Gen the Human Genome Project, yeah. Yeah, you bring up you bring up a great point, Randy. Excellent. Randy brings up a very good point, and that is this: we don't need to be able to address every single issue. Radioisotopic dating is difficult to understand, right? Genetics is difficult to understand, but you and I can have one or two easily remembered items. You know, Ernie says, you know, what are the four questions he always asks? How did you get something from nothing, right? How did life come from non-life? Those sort of things, higher forms from lower forms. Those are great questions. We don't have to have a PhD to have that and to at least encourage the person to think. Blake. Good. Excellent. <clears throat> yep. Pointing to the gospel, not relying on an intellectual argument. Excellent. And you may even start the gospel. Jason. Both science and Christianity require a faith, a basic belief in some assumptions. And the question that Blake was pointing to is, what are you going to rest your eternity on? What are you going to rest your eternity on? If I'm wrong, what I've done is I've lived my life trying to be a moral individual and helping others. If you're wrong, <clears throat> then there's a God who is the judge of all the earth who not only created us, but is going to hold you and I accountable. What are the implications? Yes, Dan. One of the challenges <clears throat> Christians face when responding to a scientific argument <clears throat> is um, you know, there's only two explanations for how we got it. There's either accidental chance, random, random chance, or there's intelligent design. Those are the only two, one or the other. The uh, scientific community has arbitrarily chosen not to consider the possibility of design and creation. It is not to be considered. With that point of view, the only thing they have left is evolution. Therefore, they are compelled to find arguments for evolution that align with their beliefs that they can wrap their arms around and cling to. So the only way we can really break through that is change their view on whether it's possible that there's an intelligent design response, which is why the gospel, the Bible, the spiritual issue has to be addressed first before they'll open their mind to consider the problems with their scientific approach. And so again, have one or two simple tools that you can use that, you know, some people use the watch analogy. 
you know, I'm going to take these parts, I'm going to put them in a box, I'm going to shake them up, and they're going to find, you know, a completely formed watch. Some people use the uh, monkeys, you know, given enough time with a typewriter, writing out the Encyclopedia Britannica. Some people use the uh, tornado in the fields where the old uh, jets are stored. A tornado goes through this field of, you know, junkyard jets, and all of a sudden out comes, uh, you know, a beautiful uh, fighter or an A-10 warthog. You know, those are the chances. Use a simple argument, but again, point to Christ and point to the moral issue here because it's not an intellectual thing, is it? It's a moral thing. The heart of man is desperately wicked and clings to those things which help them to say, we will not have this man to reign over us. And the wonderful thing is that there are hope. There's, there's hope for people like me, spoon-fed evolution as a kid, blindly accepting it, and God can open our eyes and make him see not only the glorious truth of his creation, but how we can become a new creation in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you uh, for the fact that you have created the world as a reflection of your order your majesty, your glory, your invisible attributes are clearly seen through that which is made. And Lord, I pray that you would help us when we are confronted with fools that say there is no God and will not give you the glory. Lord, that we will have pity and compassion, that you would cause us to pray and love for these people, that you would be honored and glorified, that you would bring sons and daughters to yourself, for, not just for our peace and our winning the argument, but for your glory. For your honor, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. Help us to worship you aright as we gather with your people to sing, to pray, and to hear and obey your word. And we thank you in your son's name, Lord. Amen. Amen.